Well, good morning, Hope. For the past uh, couple weeks, we've been looking at one of the most well-known episodes in the life of David. It's the story of David and Bathsheba, and we're going to dive right into it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, if you want to follow along, if you have a Bible with you, otherwise it'll be on the screen. And I'm just going to summarize the story for those of you that maybe don't know the story or weren't here. What happens is one day David sees a beautiful woman out his window, he sends for her, he has sex with her, then he sends her back home. And at some point the woman named Bathsheba sends word back to David that she's pregnant. And instead of repenting and owning up to his sin, David decides he's going to cover it up. So he sends a message to his army commander to send Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, to send him back home from the battlefront for a little R&R. And David tells Uriah, go sleep with your wife. But Uriah is this brave, this loyal soldier, and he can't fathom the thought that his fellow soldiers are out sleeping in fields and he gets to come home and do this. And so he won't do it while this battle is happening. And David even tries even harder. He gets him drunk but Uriah still won't compromise. So David sends Uriah back to the battle, and this time he sends him with a message to deliver, to hand to the army's commander, and that Uriah is supposed to be sent to the front lines where the battle is fierce and really set up so that ensuring that he dies, and it works. He's killed. And after Bathsheba mourns her husband's death, King David acts like this benevolent man. He takes in this pregnant widow, no doubt, so he could appear like he was going to adopt this baby, and he's looks like he's gotten away with it, and nobody would ever know. But then, verse 27, 2 Samuel 11, God shows up, and it says, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Next verse is chapter 12, and it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the prophet Nathan tells David a story about this injustice that was done, and David gets all fired up as he hears this story about what somebody else has supposedly done. It's a parable. It's a story. How could anybody do such a thing? And David's so kind of self-righteous and lost in his darkness that he actually says, as surely as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. As soon as he says that, Nathan turns the tables, looks David in the eye, and says, you are that man. David, this is your sin that we're talking about. This is your story. You are that man. And Nathan delivers God's word. And we didn't get into that last week. But I want to dig a little deeper into that piece. Um, it's two things that I really want to communicate that I really felt compelled this week as I wrote this message to, to, to pull out of this story that I think are really important. And we're going to begin by reading the word of the Lord, this thing that comes to David from Nathan. Verse 7, chapter 12 says, Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, God says, I, I would have given you even more. It's as if God is saying, David, why didn't you come to me for what you needed? Why, why did you try to fill that emptiness up with sex that spiraled into cover-up and murder? Why, David, Why? Verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. 
You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. God is saying, this wasn't just to this guy and this wife. You did this to me, God is saying. And I just want to stop for a minute right there in that passage and just absorb like, think about the energy that's in this. this. This thing that God is saying to David, it seems really intense, right? Like, I don't have a lot of jokes this morning because this message is, like, really intense, right? But remember, God says that David is a man after his own heart. He's a man after God's own heart. And right here, God seems furious with him. But what I want to do is notice something beyond the actual words of God. I, I'm, I'm noticing the energy, the emotion with which these words are coming to David. And when I let myself just kind of sit in these three verses, this, this anger of God, it's obvious to me that there's something deeper going on. Because even though God sounds angry with David, and he is, uh, he actually is showing that they have a close relationship, that like, there's this intimacy that's revealed in this passage. And normally we don't connect you know, anger and intimacy, but I'm looking at this energy that God is giving and bringing into this here, and it almost, almost sounds like the way that a spouse would express him or herself toward an unfaithful partner. When, when intimate love has been betrayed, they say, why? Why? And God's saying, why? I provided for you, David. I sacrificed. I, I would, I've given you everything and even more. I called you. I've delivered you. If you wanted more, I'd have given you more. Why? You see, there's this intimate thing that I think helps explain this intense emotion, this anger of God towards David. Dave Johnson, one of my friends and mentors, said this incredibly thought-provoking statement. Dave said, sometimes, perhaps the scariest thing about God is the love of God. And I heard that, and I was like, well, well wait a minute, why... Like, why would that be? But thought about it for a bit. The scariest thing about God might be the love of God. And, you know, I, I agree because the truth is, here's what could be scary for us. The love of God for you is real. Like, the love of God for you is personal. The love of God wants to press in close and not go away. It's not distant. It's, it's not impersonal. It is Right here, we talk about our heart. It's right here. It's based on a promise, a covenant. And because the love of God is so personal, he is incapable of being dispassionate about you. He loves you. He loves me. He has entered into this covenant relationship with me and with you. And because it is that personal, that kind of love is capable of being wounded when it's ignored or betrayed. We might even say that God is like a passionate lover that's in pursuit of his beloved. And those scriptures are sprinkled all through the Bible. See, this love of God is incapable of being indifferent toward people because he truly, really, deeply loves. We even take from the Ten Commandments. You back up to that place in the story, and God declares, I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. And, you know, I read that, and I used to sound really confusing and strange on the front end, like, what? Jealousy? What? But when we look deeper at the story of God, it reveals that he is a jealous God because of his passionate and personal love for us. And he's saying, I don't want to share you with anybody. No other gods. It would be kind of like two people getting married and saying to each other, um, hey, you know, you got to take all 
the pictures of your old boyfriends or girlfriends off the wall. Like, I'm not going to share you with anybody else. And would that be unreasonable? Let me try over here. Would that be unreasonable? Okay, this side of the room totally understands. Like, you guys can do the relationship seminar from these folks over here, right? See, it's this intense, it's this committed relationship. It's deeply personal that God invites us into And frankly, honestly, many people have committed their lives to Christ, but when they hear this kind of talk about passionate, personal love that God has for us, they would rather say, yeah, no thanks, no way, let's keep it impersonal, let's keep it distant, let's keep it out there. How about I just follow the rules and maybe like learn really good theology, because this relationship thing, some people would say, scares me to death. And sadly, I think maybe many Christians and many churches would rather view God kind of like, you know, God's just this big, soft, benevolent grandma, right? You know, God is someone that you visit once a week, and no matter where you've been, no matter what you do, no matter how you've lived, you just get a big, giant hug and, and, and an extra piece of cake, right? You get that grandma hug, she pulls you in close, you're almost smothered, you get that big hug and a, just an extra piece of cake, and the grandma God, you know, it's, 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 that's kind of nice. That's why people like her. And by the way, my apologies to those of you who are actually grandmas in the room who do this, okay? <laughs> grandmas, keep doing that, right? Keep giving us hugs, loving us no matter what. Like, we all need somebody like that in our life. Amen? Yeah. Okay, everybody agreed on that. Okay, good. Grandmas, you're, you're good in this room. So I'm not dissing grandmas, um, but let's not confuse that beautiful love of a grandma that we all need with God's primary posture of relationship towards us because it it doesn't really represent it fully. I mean, because the grandma God is nice. But here's the truth. If that's the only way that I relate to God, um, if that's the God that I'm going to week after week, is that she doesn't have a real clue about my life, about my time, what I do in my world, because I don't spend any time with her all week long. I just go visit grandma God on Sunday, or at least maybe some Sundays, and show up. And when I do... (laughs) I get a great big hug and an extra piece of cake. But friends, how many of you know that the grandma God is not who David is experiencing? That's not the God talking to David in verses 7 through 9. That's not the voice that's coming. Because if it's the grandma God, well, this is what it probably looks like. If it's the grandma God, then so if I'm sleeping with my neighbor's wife, grandma don't care. Just a great big hug extra piece of cake. If I'm stealing from my boss, grandma God don't care. Just a great big hug and an extra piece of cake. Or if I'm gossiping about somebody at work or in my family or if I'm sowing dissension in my church body by speaking words that undermine and cause anxiety, grandma God don't care. So lest some of us think that that kind of mushy picture is the ultimate picture of the love of God. That, again, it's not the kind of love that David experiences from God in this passage. See, I want to talk about the intimate love of God for us. The intimate love of God. And I want to back up to the book of Exodus, where the people of God have been delivered from Egypt. Exodus chapter 20, Moses goes up to the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments from God. And we can look at this deeper another time. But, but really, those Ten Commandments were more like wedding vows. They weren't just a list of rules, right? When Moses came down from the mountain, and then he saw the children of Israel worshiping idols, gets angry, throws the Ten Commandments, shatters them. 
And, and if we don't understand what God was actually committing to, what he was covenanting to in that moment, it just looks like, you know, God has a short fuse, right? He's just short-tempered. But when we look at it from the perspective of God offering an intimate relationship, a personal relationship, a deep promise, very much in ways like wedding vows, I think then it makes more sense why God was angry about the betrayal. And 14 chapters later, Exodus 34, essentially God comes back to the people of Israel and he's kind of saying, hey, I still want to marry you. I still want to be in covenant with you. So he brought the vows, the Ten Commandments, back. And I kind of wonder if it was almost analogous to the people of Israel and God himself looking eye to eye, saying to each other from this day forward, I pledge myself to you, you and no others. I'll take all the pictures of my old boyfriends or girlfriends off the wall to have and to hold. Maybe that's a better picture of the kind of relationship that we're talking about between us and God. See, in the New Testament as well, like the Apostle Paul talks about this, his favorite metaphor for the people of God is the what of Christ? The, the bride of Christ. Now, upside and downside to this, there's an upside to that metaphor, this kind of intimate relationship with God. It's, it's you could call it the romance, right? It's the intensity, the devotion, that God is not going to be distant. There is going to be a partnership. It's going to be real. And on one side, there's this tremendous commitment from God to us. He's not going away. And also from me to him. That's the upside. But the downside of the metaphor is that when this kind of deep covenant is broken, the pain is real, the wound is deep, and the anger is intense. And that's what I think we have here in verses 7 through 9, this anger of an intimate love that's been betrayed, which explains why he's so intense with David. David, I provided for you. I took care of you. We have had this close, intimate relationship. Series of questions here to think about. So, is the relationship over? I mean, if this was a marriage, that's what, what would be at stake, right? Are we going to stay together would be the question. So is the relationship with God and David over? The answer is right. It's no. No. Will it be healed and can it be healed? Yes. The answer is yes. Is God going to give up on David? Nope. Will David recover his heart? Yeah, he will. But will it be quick and easy? No. Never is, right? You know, I was thinking about this metaphor, and I, again, <laughs> I want to be careful with this, but I was thinking about this metaphor, and given this metaphor, do you ever think that you or I might take our sin a little too lightly? Maybe. And sometimes I think, I wonder if I even have a clue how I have wounded the heart of God who makes himself vulnerable to us. But here in our story, I think David at least began to see what he had done and the impact. So back to our story, this passionate, intense word of the Lord comes to David. David hears it, and then he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He hears it. He gets it. The lights come on for the first time in a long time. He understands his sin. He understands how he betrayed God. And as big as the adultery and then the murder and the cover-up and the lying, what David finally sees here is that he also actually betrayed the heart of God and that spiritual drift that led him to that place. I think that David probably would have admitted once he started drifting and moved away from God, 
After that, the adultery stuff was easy. Even murder became possible. But his root sin was that he betrayed the heart of God. He left God. So in doing what he did here, returning to God, that was his first step. And maybe then with God's help, he could say, together we'll go pick up the pieces. We'll try to clean up this mess that I've made. You know, this episode in the life of David shows a picture of the heart of God and his passionate love for us. See, God is not being petty. He's not being picky. He loves us. He wants the best for us. And when we choose to betray his heart, it hurts him and it damages us. And so that piece, just dropping that into the story, is the first thing of two that I wanted us to see this morning, that, that, that it's the heart of God. It's an intimate relationship. It is intense. It is real. And I want to move to the other thing I wanted us to notice from this story this morning. David says, verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. And then after that confession, Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. That's where I left us off last week. And you know, right there, that is amazing grace right there, isn't it? David, the Lord has put away, taken away your sin. It's good news for you and for me. The Lord has taken away your sin. But I'm aware that how that sentence even lands on us kind of depends on the place we're at and what we're in touch with at any given moment. I see at least two perspectives here. First, I can see it from the perspective of when I'm the one that's blown it, right? When I'm in touch with something that I've done, my sin or the damage that I've done, the mess that I've made, the hurt that I've caused, and I look at it and I'm hopeless to fix it, and I know I need God, and into that, amazing grace is really good news, isn't it? It's really good news. And it's real. But on the other hand, let's say I'm the one that was hurt um, by someone else's sin. And this whole statement here might seem way too easy. Right? Like, think about this. What if, what if uh, all of the people who were hurt by David's adultery and then the murder and cover-up, what if they were all kind of like hidden in the back of the room, just flies on the wall watching Nathan come to David? They'd see David say to the, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan would reply, the Lord has taken away your sin. And if we were one of those people standing in the back, flies on the wall, maybe we're wives of the other soldiers who were killed along with Uriah, we'd be like, whoa, 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 wait, that's it? Well, that was easy, right? Like the staples button, except it says forgiveness, it's done, right? Just say, I'm sorry, and you get off the hook. Parents, we know how this works, right? We want to teach our kids when they're young to take ownership when they hurt someone. So we teach them to say, sorry, right? right? And that's a start. That's a start. But, you know, some kids figure out that it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. If I just say, I'm sorry, right? I can just say, sorry. I don't have to mean it. I just got to say the words, right? Kid says, sorry. And we go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not enough, kid. Like, look at what you did. And the kid goes, oh, come on. I, I said, I'm sorry, right? I just want to get off the hook. And here David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. And I read this, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. That's it? Like, that's all? So I say, I'm sorry, and he says, okay. Did any of you actually, when you went home this week, read, keep reading the rest of the story? Or if you knew the rest of the story, you're like, wait a minute, pal. You didn't read the whole verse, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, because if we keep reading, there is more to the story than where we stopped last week. 
says, Nathan replied again, the Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die, which is interesting because he's the one that said, this man deserves to die. So he pronounced his own sentence, David did. And Nathan says, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. However, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is also born to you will surely die. Pretty heavy. Pretty heavy. See, friends, there it goes. Friends, there are consequences for our sin. Yes, there is amazing grace for us no matter what we have done. Thank you. Thank you. There are consequences for our sin. There is amazing grace no matter what we have done, but there are consequences when we make a mess. And listen, one of the hallmarks of my life's message is, is, is the amazing grace, the love of God. And I think too few of us really grasp that truth as a cornerstone of our walk with God. I think there's a lot of Christians running around, that they're, they're out there striving, they're trying to earn God's approval and love, and, and they miss out on the truth that it's already theirs, right? You are already loved. You are washed clean. You can live free. Grace is for you, And make no mistake, the scripture is true. It says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So David's heart will be restored. God's love will be lavished on him. However, while the amazing grace of God is real and it is available, it does not erase the consequences of sin. You know, God's grace, it's not like a, a big, huge mattress at the bottom of a cliff that'll keep you from hurting yourself if you jump off the cliff, right? The fact is this, friends, if, if you jump off a cliff thinking that the laws of gravity, I can get away with this, the laws of gravity don't apply to you, what's going to happen is you're going to fall. And if you fall, you're going to hit. And when you hit, you are going to be hurt because there are consequences for sin that grace does not remove. And if you break the laws of the land, if you say, you know, rob a bank or embezzle money from your employer, or if you don't pay your taxes, there, you know, is there, is there, is there grace for that stuff? I promise you. Like if you come to me or somebody that has a mature relationship with God and understands this, or you simply even go to God, I promise you there is grace for that. It's a grace that is greater than all our sin. Absolutely, there is grace for that. But you're still going to jail. And even there, by the way, in that jail cell, the grace of God will come and empower you in that situation, will empower and fill you to help you go through your jail sentence. But there are consequences. Or if, um, how about if you have sex with someone who's not your spouse? Is there grace for that? Like when you come before God and admit, I've sinned against my spouse, my family, against the Lord, is there grace for that? Absolutely, there is grace for that. I have seen that grace lavished on people. Many of the people that have pastored in the past, in fact, we're going to do a men's breakfast and hear the story of one of my closest friends who's gone through that situation and was the perpetrator and saw the grace of God come into his life. And if you're someone that's been in that situation, you might say like he does, like, no idea, I was capable of moving into that kind of stuff before. 
but got entangled in it, caught up in it. So friends, I know there is grace for that, yes. However, there is a lot of work that will be, need to be done to repair, to restore, and you still might lose your marriage, and you still might lose the respect of your kids, you still might get a sexually transmitted disease, and you still might get pregnant from somebody who's not your husband. Or if you use people, if you manipulate, if you lie to people, if you ignore boundaries and you're being disrespectful, is there grace for that? <laughs> Absolutely, there is grace for that. But I'm still not going to trust you for a long time. Because there are consequences for sin that grace does not remove. Back at verse 14, there's one of the specific consequences of David's sin. Um, however, it says, Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Let's stop there for a moment. In other words, what this has done, the people who already hate God are going to use your sin, David, as proof that this kingdom of God is just a bunch of baloney, right? This, this whole God thing is just a crock. Let me just ask a question. How relevant is that in our world today? Are we seeing some of that happen? Sadly, we have seen it before. We're seeing it in the future, the past. It's going to happen. It has happened. And that's what happens every time a church leader who sins and is exposed publicly will see it on the news. Sometimes when I read those stories of this stuff happening, I can almost imagine, I can almost hear the collective cynicism and murmuring of the folks reading it, and I don't blame them. And for me, as a pastor, it actually it serves as a warning. And it needs to serve as a warning. And a reminder that for me, if I were to despise the word of the Lord, to ignore the boundaries that he set in place, if I were to do that, it would cause the enemies of God to blaspheme God, to mock and ridicule Jesus. Now, even that stuff, is there grace for that? Yep. There is grace for that. But guess what? Even though you will get healed when you repent, God is still going to get mocked. And related to that idea, I mean, even people that don't hate God get impacted when a Christian leader is revealed to be living a very public, uh, different life in private than they proclaim in public. I've watched this throughout my entire uh, teenage and adult, adult life. Um, I remember way back in the 80s, uh, Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, right? Do you remember the televangelist scandals, those of you that are older? And I was in high school, and just because people knew I was a Christian, I got crap for that stuff. Um, crazy, right? Then I go to Bible college because there's two youth professor teachers that were excellent, amazing. I wanted to study and learn from them, and within a couple months found out that one of them had been having an affair. A few months later found out the other as well. That's pretty damaging, pretty hard. A couple years later, I was home visiting my parents and happened to be there on the day that it was revealed that our senior pastor had been having an affair for seven or eight years. And this guy was one of my strongest supporters. Going to Bible college, helping with scholarships, and there he goes. It's more than that. A couple of favorite professors also went down um, one of my mentors when I was in my early 30s, who'd given me tons of opportunity, ended up being front page news. 
in a Craigslist prostitution sting. Um, so this is personal to me. And for more reasons than I can even share here. Because every time that that happened in every one of those instances, I can think of people who looked up to these men of God that either just walked away from God or walked away from ministry. Maybe some of the younger people saw this and thought, wow, if they can't resist sexual temptation, then I have no chance and gave themselves then permission to do things they wouldn't have done before, things that damaged their hearts. So people who hate God get impacted but also people who don't, because there's a lot of people on this journey of the heart, maybe considering where Jesus fits into their lives, and maybe they even buy in. Maybe they've even made a commitment of their life to Christ, and they're learning, they're doing their best to follow Jesus, but, but especially young people or, or, or new believers, they're trying to sort all this God stuff out, and then they see Christians embroiled in scandal, and it's very confusing, right? I mean, heck, it's confusing for all of us, right? This stuff happens... And one of the consequences of so-called Christian leaders who behave in these kind of ways is that many people, even people who were once followers of Jesus, many people just walk away. And that, my friends, is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because it's tragic to see people walk away and conclude the church is a fraud, God is a joke. And so that consequence of David's Sin, I think, is one we can relate to. Another consequence is that it rippled into his family, and you all know that David and Bathsheba's baby dies. That doesn't seem fair. Another consequence that impacts his family, up in verse 10, it says, the sword will never depart from David's household. And I think this is a normal consequence, because by David um, unleashing violence to murder Uriah, what he did, I believe, is to release violence into his own family. He maybe even gave permission to a principality and power in the spirit realm world for the sword then to be unleashed in his own family. And is there grace for that? Yes, you better believe that. And, and David is going to recover his heart. There's going to be healing out of that as well. But that was true. The sword never departed from his house. Two of his sons died violent deaths. His son Absalom, I mean, whew, there's an angry kid. We're going to look at him in a couple weeks. But his rebellion is one of the ripples out from David's sin. Verse 11, Nathan says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes. I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but this thing will be done in broad daylight before all Israel. And we'll hear in a few weeks, Absalom, David's oldest son, would be the one that does what's prophesied. He openly defies his father, has a rebellion, takes the throne. So yes, <laughs> David, the Lord has put away your sin. There's forgiveness. There is grace. But my friends, the effects of sin ripple out in damaging ways because there are consequences for sin that grace does not remove. Let me kind of, you know what, I'm going to add this one. I think another thing that can happen, and I've seen happen, consequence, is um, the failure for someone to experience what might have been. And I can think of a few stories, but one in particular, a friend of mine struggling in her marriage, and it's like, hello, like all of us do, right? 
but came to a critical point in the marriage and decided, she decided she didn't want to press in, didn't want to press through the issues in the marriage. And, the, and to be fair, the marriage issues were very difficult. But by the grace of God, we know, we know that people can learn to love their wives, can learn to love their husbands. People can humble themselves and press through hard issues. But nope, she didn't want to do it. And so... She got divorced. Now, is there grace for that? And this is more than I can think of several, but is there grace for that? Absolutely. I know firsthand, having gone through divorce myself, there is grace for that. (laughs) But are there consequences for that as well? Yeah. The consequences for my friend, and for most of us that have gone through this, you can watch it just ripple out and through our children to ministry opportunities lost. Um, I can think of a couple of my friends in particular that, that just completely were brilliant, gifted folks. Some of the most gifted, brilliant people I know, and they just made these hard turns instead of pressing through. And can God still use them? Yeah, I, I believe that God can still use them, but you gotta wonder sometimes what might have been if they'd pressed into the issues they'd stuck with it. I mean, they might even have come up with a sweet, a sweet old love on the other side. But we'll never know. So let me recap again the two things this morning I want us to remember and take home and just, and just process maybe this week. The first is this. I want us to remember <laughs> that the scariest thing about God might be the intense love of God. And that's why this stuff matters, because you are deeply loved, and he ain't going away. And the second thing, again, is this. Although God's grace is amazing, and forgiveness is full, and although the joy of David's salvation would be restored, and so can yours, there are consequences that the amazing grace of God does not magically remove. And a big reason that I wanted to come back to the story today is that I'm just in hopes that maybe we could, that I could spare you, some of you, that might be heading down a road. Worship team, will you, will you come? And as we close this message, I have to admit, I feel this tension that part of me wants to tell a joke and release, right? Um, but here's the tension. I kind of relate it to maybe how one of my doctor friends um, might feel, and I know feels from our discussions, because he deals with people with serious health issues, and some of those health issues that he deals with are preventable, right? Like certain issues are nobody's fault, okay? Um, it's just a problem you have with your heart, but some people have heart issues because of poor diet and a lack of any kind of physical activity. That would be preventable. Um, or, or some people's lung problems have nothing to do with anything they've done. We know about that, but other people... They have emphysema because they've been smoking two packs of cigarettes a day for 20 years. Now, if I was a doctor, when people like that came to me with their emphysema and they're dying because they've been smoking for 20 years, I'm not going to yell at them for their smoking, right? They come to me and say, hey, listen, doc, I'm, I'm really sick. I'm dying. I know I got to stop smoking. I'm not going to yell at you, right? Like, I'm going to listen. I'm going to hold on to you. And we are going to together ask God to embrace you and give you amazing grace. And so this morning, there's a part I just want to stop the bleeding. That's what I want to do. And some of us here need to face our, our sin, 
but I'm not going to yell at you. Like, and nobody's going to yell at you. And what we'll do is try to stop the bleeding now. We'll, we'll try to enter into some healing now. We'll even hang on to you as you go through and experience some of the consequences because you might lose your marriage. And, and God is going to hang on to you that. I've experienced God hanging on to me in the loss of a marriage firsthand. So one of the tensions I feel with this sermon, with this message, is that I don't want anybody to think I'm yelling or mad. Because I'm not. But then there's another part of me that wants to sound the alarm, right? Especially to those of you maybe that haven't started, you know, smoking yet. And I don't care about actual smoking. It's just the metaphor here, right? But I just want to say, you know, before you, before you wreck your life, before you wreck your life, don't run any red lights. You know, maybe, maybe it's like those of us who are dad. We're talking to our kids and we're saying, hey, listen, listen, kiddo, just be careful. Be careful. In fact, if my son came to me and he had made a really horrible mistake and I knew it was going to impact his life, I'm sure I would probably be angry at some level. But that's not where I'd land with him. A friend of mine talks about how this works with his wife and how his wife acts with their kids when the kids blow it. And they're older kids now, but um, he says about his wife, she has this unique way of yelling and crying at the same time, right? <laughs> we have a mom like that. He says it leaves them like absolutely helpless. They don't know what to do. But you know what that is, don't you? That's, that's the love of a mother, the love of a father where we'd be like, what in the world are you doing? Why? Now we take them in our arms and go, okay, what are we going to do next? And so I need to wrap this up. And here's the last thing I noticed in this story. And this is what we're going to make our invitation. Notice in the story that David wasn't told by Nathan how to respond. And so I'm not going to tell you how to respond this morning. God is dealing with you. You will know. I'm going to pray. We're going to be silent for a minute here and listen. So, Lord, I do think, I do think that the scariest thing about you might be your unwavering love. So I ask now that you would come and bring your love, that you would expose, reveal, call, invite. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, fall. In Jesus' name. And now in this quiet moment, Listen to God. Listen to what he's telling you about how you need to respond.